0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Lizette Baron-Carvajal, a host of the channel. Today, I will be talking to Jean Jackson about her wonderful book, Managing Multiculturalism, Indigeneity, and the Struggle for Rights in Colombia, published by Stanford University Press in 2019. Welcome, Jean. Thank you for talking to me today. It's so great to have you. Thank you. I'm very pleased to participate. Wonderful. So um, so you are an Emerita Professor of Anthropology at MIT and you have conducted research in Colombia for more than 50 years, if I'm correct. So this is remarkable and something that is powerfully conveyed in this book because you talk about your research in all of these years. But before we talk about the book, can you tell us a little bit about how you came to study anthropology? and focus specifically on indigenous groups in Colombia?
2: Well, I think I decided to go on to graduate school in anthropology when I spent my junior year in Spain in uh, 63, 64. And so I went to graduate school and it seemed preordained that I would uh, work in Latin America because I spoke Spanish and I had been to Mexico and loved it. and. Um, During my work at Stanford, I became interested in medical anthropology. And so I wanted to find a region where the communities had had as little as possible exposure to Western medicine. Uh, So that's how I ended up in the uh, region of Colombia that's right on the border with Brazil. And and right on the equator, uh, which is called
1: the Baupes, Baupes in Spanish. Wonderful. Um, I think I, I think I read that you initially were thinking of focusing on Brazil instead of Colombia. Oh, yes. But this is 1968
2: and there was um, serious scandals happening in Brazil over um, land grabs and and horrible violence to indigenous communities there. So the, the anthropologists I spoke to, both in this country and um, a couple in Brazil, said, do not go uh, right now because nobody will give you permission to go into the region you want to work in, which was the Northwest Amazon. You'll just cool your heels in Belém or Manaus or, you know, someplace like that. So at the very last minute, I had been studying Portuguese intensively. I contacted people in Venezuela and Peru and Ecuador and Colombia. And uh, um, Alicia Luzan de Reichel wrote back saying, welcome, and gave me a long list of things to buy. So <laughs> that's how I ended up in Colombia.
1: Yeah, that's wonderful. And, you know, it's it's such a great thing that you've conducted research for this long period of time, because now we can we can see in this book how your thinking has evolved, uh, the, the challenges you faced. So tell us more about this book. Um, so maybe it's because I'm a historian and I'm not usually accustomed to reading such self-reflexive work, which I know is a characteristic of, of anthropology as a discipline. Uh, but it's wonderful just to read how your thought has changed over this period of time and how you, you even discuss some mistakes you made along the way. And, and you always situate your, your choices scholarly um, about, you know, your, your research choices in, in very concrete historical moments. So uh, how you came to this book and, uh, you know, did you envision you were going to write this book as you did? Well, first of all, um,
2: uh, reflexive writing in anthropology uh, did not at all characterize it until the postmodernist trend began. In the mid 1980s. Before that, anthropology was uh, a, a trying to be a positivist social science and collect data and um, concern itself with rigorous methodologies and so on and so forth. It was only in the prefaces to that basically anthropologists would talk about. You know, doing field work, and some of them wrote separate books, but the the reflexive part and the ethnographic part were were for the most part kept distinct and then, um, with you know this linguistic turn where people looked at writing and looked and critiqued those methodologies, anthropologists started writing more uh, experimentally and and more reflexively. And my purpose was to in in this book. To show how anthropology is done, how, how anthropology works, so to speak, the process of field work to um, give uh, an example of one ethnographer's journey uh, and an example of the, you know, sometimes flying by the seat of your pants or, um, you know, uh, having to change your research proposal very radically because, uh, you know, a revolution happens or something like that, and uh, t- to bring some of, of the epistemological, the ethical, the methodological issues that we face to the fore so that readers can understand a little bit, uh, again, just from one, one set of examples, how you actually conduct ethnography and write ethnography.
1: Yeah, no, and I, I and I think uh this is what makes your book so wonderful and it can be useful. I guess I mean more broadly of like it's it's about ethnography, but I think it's a great example of how to think ethically and the challenges we may face. So I think it can be useful for many different audiences. Um and you have so many different examples that it's such a nice read. Um Good. So so this book, you told us, follows the long trajectory of your research, and you do this as a way to explore the evolution of the country's indigenous movement. So you, you were there when the things were happening, when major changes were occurring. So before we delve into, into the specific parts of, the, of your argument and your concepts, I wonder if you can situate the case of Colombia in a broader perspective, as you do in the introduction of your book? Uh, What are those events, international organizations, state actors that our listeners should be aware of in order to understand the history and evolution of Colombia's indigenous movement in the second half of the 20th century? And how does Colombia compare to other countries of of the region?
2: Well, um, the first thing I would say is that the Cold War was coming to an end and the countries in the West were reevaluating how they were going to deal with the Soviet Union and with the Third World. That's the backdrop to an awful lot of what is the backdrop to my book: um, the the presence uh, um, of multiculturalism. Uh, many Latin American states during this period were undergoing what's called the democratic transition, and there were many revisions. Um, or there were just new constitutions being written. I think maybe 15 countries engaged in this process. Colombia never had a revolution, uh, unlike several other countries. And it has been a, a putative democracy, al- although that needs an awful lot of qualification. But uh, other countries um, had more experiences of dictators and uh, and and a lack of democracy for for periods of time, unfortunately the, the Colombian state has always been quite weak and subject to all kinds of disruptions and a big difference between that country and other countries is the fifty year long civil war which some people don't want to call a civil war so you can Call it an armed and an internal armed conflict, and that just has meant uh, an enormous played an enormous role in uh, in the the issues and um, the events that I you know pay attention to. Uh, but uh, like these other countries, it did go through a democratic uh, transition in the sense of uh, very far-reaching constitutional reform, but again, with the backdrop of the armed conflict making um, just the the country um, experienced this transition in in rather uh, some rather different respects because of that uh, armed conflict backdrop.
1: Yeah. And what about in terms of comparing Colombia's indigenous population to the indigenous populations of other Latin American countries? Because you make a really important comparison with places like Mexico or like Bolivia so what can you tell our, our listeners about that so they can understand the how big was this indigenous movements in terms of how many people are indigenous in Colombia
2: right geography plays a role as well as demography um, there are some countries in Latin America Guatemala and California, Ecuador Mexico that have much larger indigenous populations Colombia is on the same order as Brazil Argentina with very small numbers Colombia is uh is between 3.5 and and 4% uh, with the qualification that census census records don't always um are not always accurate I'll leave it at that uh with respect to geography uh, Colombia has both highland and lowland indigenous communities Brazil does not and uh So it is an Andean country along with Ecuador and and Bolivia and and Peru. Uh, I write about, uh, I contrast uh, the development of official indigenism, which is an assimilationist project that states undertake with respect to their indigenous communities. I compare Mexico and Colombia. Comparison is, is useful. The contrasts are quite pronounced. I won't go into that now because it, it's complex. But the act that Colombia has a very small group of indigenous uh, communities and that some of them are in highland areas and therefore uh, not dispersed uh, and therefore politically much more um, adept at, at, at organizing is a, a very important feature of. Uh, Colombia's what has transpired. Yeah. I would argue that small percentage of indigenous communities was actually a favorable component of organizing, um, because unlike Guatemala and Bolivia in particular, you didn't have all of this rhetoric, sometimes extremely sensationalistic uh, about the, you know, the indigenous threat. Uh, which you find in very, very blatant, bold terms in both of those other countries.
1: Yeah. And I think one of the other very important factors you mentioned is that indigenous community in Colombia gained collective ownership of almost 30 percent of the national territory. Right. Which is remarkable, given those demographics you just described. It's 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 astounding.
2: And uh, that uh, to understand that and i don't completely understand it yet is uh is is quite a challenge because it is so remarkable but i would add that these are items on paper and in computers uh the proof of the pudding is looking at a- actual territories and what's happening in them and um the picture is quite bleak in a lot of areas of Colombia. You have mega hydroelectric projects, you have military bases, you have all kinds, and then you'd have just outright lack of control uh, by state security forces. Uh, One branch of the guerrilla group FARC, Fuerzas Armadas Revolucionarias de Colombia, There's one branch that's a dissident branch, and they're still controlling a large area in Amazonas, uh, the Amazonas. So, uh, again, you know, you have official what's legally established, and then you have to look at what's actually happening on the ground.
1: Yeah, and we can see that contrast in your book beautifully. So for listeners, if they're intrigued by this, by this fact that indigenous people have collective ownership of over 30% or 30% of, of national territory in Colombia but you know also understand the inequalities all of these things you tar- you just mentioned you sh- they should just go on and read the book so let's let's move on and talk about some of the main concepts of of your book because you devote a significant part of of your introduction to talk about concepts so let's let's start with identity so how do you conceptualize identity in the book How have your understandings of identity changed in the course of your career? And here I would like to tie this discussion with another very important concept, which is indigeneity. So what is indigeneity and how is that different from indigenousness? So tell us more about this.
2: Well, I'm particularly interested in social identity, and and that's uh, defined as all the groups and categories that one belongs to. I'll also add that quite a number of social scientists think that you cannot come up with a useful overarching definition of identity. It's just, it's just wieldy, and um, uh, I work with that notion of social identity in the context of politics. Uh, identity politics is is the is the phrase. And so I I don't explore an awful lot of what other theorists and ethnographers work with uh, with respect to this very, very large abstract notion. And as you just pointed out, I'm particularly interested with respect to the area of identity politics, looking at the issue of indigenous identity. It's uh, a very Thorny area to to think about and to to, do research in, and it it's also obviously a very sensitive area to uh, to do anthropological research in. Um, There are several reasons for this, as I point out. The word indigeneity is a new word. Um, Of course, it comes from indigenous. Indigenous just means of a particular place, uh, you know, originates in a particular place, an indigenous plant, an indigenous animal. uh, It has not been moved, has not migrated, or if it has migrated, it's spoken of as indigenous to that other territory. So that's the idea. It's the idea of a um, uh, original, original to a particular place. In the Western Hemisphere, prior to European arrival, there were peoples in the Western Hemisphere, and they came to be called Indians or indigenous. But we also know that there are indigenous movements uh, throughout the rest of the world. And it's fascinating uh, to see how indigeneity gets worked on, debated over. And um subjected to uh, legal and jurisprudential uh policies in the rest of the world, uh, because it, it is quite different. People in Africa you know will say we're all indigenous, uh, but there still are uh, small groups, small communities in Africa who claim to be indigenous within those larger uh States uh, like Kenya, Tanzania, and so forth. In the Western Hemisphere, this notion of Indianness, indigenous, indigenousness, is um, pretty widely accepted. But what that consists of, apart from descent from um, earlier peoples who lived here before, here being the Western Hemisphere before the uh, arrival of the Europeans is very very complex. Um, the other uh, other notions are association with the territory and some um, in many areas of course some kind of notion of genetic relatedness. but these are very very abstract and if you want to get into um, other concepts associated in, in some Circles with indigeneity, you'll start talking about ideas about uh, spirituality and so forth more more cultural and social notions. Um, I use the concept indigeneity because it does stand in for this very complex set of issues that i'm that I'm trying to discuss, but people should remember that it's It's a new concept and and its connection to the idea of indigenous, which is a very broad idea.
1: Perfect. And that's super clear in the introduction. So for our listeners, if they want to learn more about indigeneity, um, there's a subsection there that you can go and consult. Um, So let's now talk about two other central concepts, which are multiculturalism and neoliberalism. So multiculturalism, as you tell us, is an ideology that celebrates and works to protect ethnic and cultural diversity. Meanwhile, neoliberalism seeks to dismantle the welfare state through economic restructuring and market-driven governance. So neoliberalism reconceptualizes the person. Political subjects now fashion themselves through market logics of competition and efficiency. In a way, I think this may seem to contradict some of those ideas about indigeneity that present indigenous people as subjects driven by collective action or as stewards of the environment that oppose capitalist development. But you tell us that multiculturalism and neoliberalism do not necessarily oppose one another. And that economic austerity and pro-market reforms have actually accompanied, been accompanied by pro-democracy and multicultural agendas. So what is the relationship between neoliberalism and multiculturalism? Do they, do they need one another to exist? Is multiculturalism always necessarily neoliberal? So
2: um, multiculturalism, I think we should distinguish the general Concept And you just gave a good definition with official multiculturalism. Um, This is state, for the most part, state promoted multicultural legislation policies and their implementation. Um, Yes, multiculturalism uh, seeks to recognize difference and say to groups that are different in a particular country, uh, please join and become full-fledged citizens, but you will be citizens with special rights—the right to difference. Um, we are no longer going to stigmatize or discriminate against your difference. Uh, unity through diversity is is what we're uh, is our project. But of course, once legislation uh, is enacted, what's going on is the state is seeking to discriminate and choose uh, to dissect if you want and choose which groups are to be recognized officially and, and seen as entitled to, uh, to state special services uh, in the areas of health or education or not having to serve in the military or, or whatever. Um, the link between official multiculturalism because uh, NGOs uh, will have their own multiculturalist agendas and the indigenous movement certainly has its, you know, set of agendas. And those are necessarily directly linked to neoliberalism. Indirectly, yes, they are, because uh, eventually um, the funders for NGOs uh, quite often have a very clearly discernible neoliberal logics behind um, their choices for for funding. Um, Official multiculturalism enacts its multiculturalist policies because of uh, the opening up uh, in Colombia. It happened in the early 90s of uh, neoliberal uh, moves. Well, it happened before, such as structural adjustment and dismantling the corporatist state. Uh, quite often seen as as uh, corrupt and bloated and um, just not working well at all, and that kind of accusation uh, was was leveled at many Latin American states in the 70s and 80s. So the opening up uh, to a marketized notion of of governance and relaxing uh, deregulating. All kinds of institutions and laws connected to the corporate state did open up spaces for um, various groups, uh, and they can be religious groups as well as indigenous and Afro-descendant groups to cut their own deals, to work directly, for example, uh, with uh, an international NGO, or you know they they didn't. Have to necessarily work through state agencies, which sometimes would simply just siphon off whatever funds were were coming in. So that's one example of the linkages that uh, that you can find between neoliberal logics and and multiculturalism. There are a number of scholars who mount very powerful critiques of uh, link. Uh, which, uh, as you point out, on the surface, um, they don't seem to necessarily be linked at all. Uh, one is, uh, you know, a fight for justice and recognition, and the other is uh, dismantling, you know, what is perceived of as, uh, as unworkable and corrupt governments. And one very good criticism comes from um, anthropologist Charles Hale, who writes that recognition of uh, the right to culture very often is accompanied by um, just denial of uh, a recognition of other problems that poor communities, poor urban, poor rural communities face oppression, poverty itself, you know, very corrupt uh, state security forces, uh, what have you. And you certainly can see evidence you know, supporting his argument in in many, many Latin American countries.
0: I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including calorie-smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals... slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
1: Yeah, wonderful. I mean, I think our listeners have a great read ahead if they're interested in this relationship between multiculturalism and neoliberalism. So so I guess now that we have discussed some of those foundations, I think it's a good time to move to, to the chapters. Um, just to flag it to our listeners, your book is divided in five chapters, uh, followed by a conclusion. And these chapters develop your broader interventions and include, at times, multiple ethnographic cases. So this makes this book such a wonderful read because it incorporates many different examples and it truly shows your academic trajectory of more than 50 years. So I think for just context, let's, let's start with chapter one, which is titled Indigenous Colombia. So in this chapter, you provide a history of indigenous organizing in Colombia, the discussions that led to the constitution of 1991, um, the year in which I was born. So for me, that constitution is like, (laughs) (laughs) it's like, I'm a, I'm a daughter of that, of that time. Okay. And so you also give a brief introduction to the countries Afro-Colombians. So maybe you can tell our listeners about this history, you know, about some of its landmarks, some of the important actors. It's a lot. I know it's a it's a long history, and for those who want to know more details, they should go and read that chapter. But what are some of this, of what are some of the important things that happen in this history, and what is the distinction between or the connection between ethnicity and race in the case of Colombia?
2: Well, um, I'd start off by saying uh, mm-hmm. an ancestral figure, Manuel Quintín Lame, uh, during the twenties um, broke with. Both the left and the right, he started off being very interested in in Marxism, uh, but he broke, and that is the first kind of nationwide example of indigenous uh, organizing. He died um, too too early to see the fruits of his labor, uh, um, you know, really come into bloom in in the in the seventies and eighties. Um, but he he really is a foundational. Figure. The Constitution, and there were lots of reforms before the Constitution, um, is the most far reaching in Latin America uh, with respect to indigenous rights. And I have to uh, point out that there are under 4% of um, the population is indigenous, and up to 30% of Colombia's population uh, is Afro-descendant. Of course, uh, how you, um, you know, define that and, um, and provide evidence is, is very complicated. Um, but between, uh, um, let's say, 15 to 30 percent is Afro-descendant. That's the largest um, proportion in uh, all of Spanish-speaking Latin America, Brazil, of course, has has a higher proportion. So um, there's really quite a contrast if you look at the constitution, where uh, indigenous rights and and so forth are mentioned really many times, maybe maybe twenty, and um, and Afro-descendant populations are <laughs> basically not mentioned at all. Um, there's a Transitory article. Later on, uh, legislation was passed giving certain amounts of recognition to Afro-descendant communities. But the contrast between those two—I'll just call them ethnic groups or ethno-racial groups—is—is—is is, is stark. Um, the issue of ethnicity versus race is one, of course, that is. Um, much broader than what happens in Colombia, and there's been a huge amount of literature on race recently in the last uh, fifteen years i would I would say the, the differences between indigenous mobilizing and the responses uh, that activists uh, were met with is remarkable uh, i i mean um, activists were like rock stars. They were on TV. They were on the front page of the newspapers. Was, there was a moment in which, for various reasons, including the armed conflict um, and the rise of multiculturalism, indigeneity, indigenous people were, were, were just, you know, seen as, uh, as representing all kinds of good things as opposed to 20 years before when there were massacres wiping out entire communities. Um, and the differences are important to understand. One difference is how Afro descendant populations are seen. Quite often, they're seen in stark contrast to indigenous. Of course, in reality, um, there are many people who are descended from both. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're talking about uh, how, uh, you know, representation, we're not talking about actual populations. Uh, In Colombia, with a few exceptions on the coast, small communities on the Pacific coast, Afro-descendants are are seen as subjects, as as Colombians, and quite often that's how they want to be seen, or as people living in a particular region, or as mestizo peasants. Um, The History of attempts to get afro populations in Colombia to jump on the bandwagon um, and promote, uh, uh, you know, their cause, their fights for for land and and uh, and other resources and for dignity and so forth, is a very different story from from indigenous mobilizing and activists and their allies. And one reason behind that is that. Indigenous people are seen as uh, descending from uh, autochthonous populations that were here before uh, the Europeans arrived, whereas, as we know, African-descendant people, uh, their ancestors uh, go back to Africa. So Afro-descendant mobilizing has a challenge in that if you stress the cultural implications of the people you're descended from, it does not locate you in Colombia. It locates you in Africa. And this doesn't work politically. So um, that's, that's the difference. The other difference is the, the lack, apart from Blackness, the, the lack of other characteristics that can be seen as unifying Colombia's Afro-descendant population are people in very rural areas, but most Afro-descendants live in urban areas and, and so forth. Uh, another reason is that indigeneity is very often linked to ethnicity, to culture, and Afro-descendants is linked to genetics uh, to in, in terms of recognition to physiognomy. And... Uh, Again, in terms of origins in this other patient, uh, this is not reality. Um, in fact, indigenous populations are very often racialized, um, but it's more convenient to kind of say, well, that happened in the past, but we're beyond that now. We don't discriminate anymore. Uh, Afro-descendant populations, different collectivities of them have culturally distinctive practices and and so forth, but they are much more likely to be conceptualized in terms of race. And as I just said, um, there's a continuum there. Uh, Afro-descendant people in the cities are very often just seen as kind of standard issue Colombians who are dark-skinned and than the populations in the rural areas and the Pacific coast are granted you know, much more ethnicity. Um, but it, it's, uh, it's an interesting contrast to, to work through because the history uh, during the colonial period and after independence of the official treatment of these two populations uh, also uh, reveals uh, important contrasts that have lasted. Down to the present.
1: Yeah, and I think it's such an interesting uh, contrast, and I really liked reading about it in your book. Um, so let's move to chapter two, which is titled Tucanoan Culture and the Issue of Culture. And here, culture is in quotes. So, here you tell us about your first research experience in Colombia when you came to study the Tucanoans. A group of indigenous people straddling the border between Colombia and Brazil and that inhabit what is known as the Vaupés region, which is something you said already. So I, I think our listeners would love to hear about how you're thinking about Tukanoan culture over, evolved over time, but also how you address important critiques from a fellow anthropologist and local activists. And here, uh, I think a lot had to do with this concept of culture that is so important for anthropology. I mean, for many other disciplines too, but in anthropology is particularly salient. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about this chapter and about that question um, you pose, um, that is how to conduct research on sensitive topics, even at times being critical to the actors you're analyzing without inciting opprobrium in scholarly and activist communities. So what did you learn from that experience that other researchers keep in mind? Well, I think I learned that uh, what you just said is impossible.
2: <laughs> I, certainly, I certainly didn't find, uh, find out uh, you know, a way to, to get around those, uh, again, um, challenging uh, ethical and, uh, and methodological epistemological issues. I'm, I'm not going to go into my original research because it's just way too complex. The, uh, the part of the chapter that uh, that I, I will mention is has to do with the politics of culture or cultural politics, uh, which has to do with this multicultural emphasis on recognition of difference. Uh, of 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 cultural difference, and in the Pace, which has between eighty five to ninety five percent indigenous uh, population, it became uh, the recipient of a great deal of funding coming from the state and from um, Europe and canada and I mean it really was remarkable because um, uh, lots of these ngos and and government agencies uh, genuinely wanted to help, you know, these isolated populations who had been pretty much ignored by the state and under the tutelage of the Catholic Church until these reforms started happening. I was particularly interested in a local organization, let's call it Kriva, which actually was midwife by the local Catholic missionaries um, to fight off um, debt peonage due to the rubber, rubber gathering and also to give grief to their Protestant missionary rivals. And so you had a local organization that did not arise out of the grassroots and did not arise out of their own particular issues, their own particular problems. Um, and this organization is extremely interesting because, um, unfortunately, it represents a lot of the unintended consequences of official multiculturalist plans that are developed in you know, the big city of, of Bogota and farther away, and then they have to be adjusted and they play out. In very different local contexts. So, what I looked at was how um, these activists in in Me Too, the capital, were finding out about how best to represent their culture in ways that outsiders, and this included other indigenous communities in Colombia, who were um, producing the majority of activists i.e., highland communities, Andean communities. And um, they, uh, they began uh, presenting Tucanoan culture, that's the name of the groups that inhabit the Valpais, in a way that was understandable because of received wisdom of uh, what Amazonian indigenous communities looked like. And in some extremely important respects, uh, Tucanoans. Did not look like the stereotype of Amazonian communities, so that got me very interested and I started you know documenting um, ways in which uh, this received wisdom was being attached to discussions of how Tucanoans lived and what they thought and what and their values and and so on and so forth and that's what uh, what got me into trouble because of course I looked like this uh, outsider gringa anthropologist uh, you know criticizing uh, a mobilized organization that was fighting for its place in the sun and for dignity and recognition and so on and so forth and uh, that in the book you know brings up larger issues of of just uh, what anthropology is is supposed to do in contexts that are diplomatically challenging and uh, and about extremely sensitive topics. Politics is always, at least potentially, extremely sensitive. There can be an awful lot at stake, and uh, as we know, um, quite often political politically motivated representations uh, fall a bit short of reality. Boy, we can certainly see that in this country right now. So that's, um, that's what I, I talk about, uh, you know, uh, what, what are my loyalties to, um, uh, because I don't want to just accept every assertion that an activist makes. That's not fair to the communities that, that activist claims to represent, but sometimes, you know, is, is just not representing adequately at all. Uh, and, and also, um, you know, you're, you're writing for the record and I had spent quite a bit of time in in the late sixties, uh, with an indigenous community and had, had, you know, I certainly make no claims to a great deal of knowledge, but, um, I did listen to people and write down what they told me about their values and, and, and their culture.
1: Yeah. But I really, I must say, I really appreciate this self-reflexive part of your book, because I think as scholars, we can all, you know, experience challenges, pushback, you know, have differences with other scholars or activists. And so it's, it's a great, your book is a great tool, I think, to think about these challenges. Um, Thank you. Um, okay, so we're going to skip, just for our listeners, for them to know, we're going to skip chapters three and four, um, because we're running out of time, but not, they are wonderful, so I advise them to go and check them out. Chapter three is titled, The States Present in the Baupes Increases, and chapter four uh, is titled, The Indigenous Movement and Rights. Here you cover very different topics, legal pluralism, uh, you discuss national, more national pol- uh, policies developed in Bogotá and implemented locally. So there's a lot of things to discuss here uh, that, that our listeners can later on go on and read in your book. So I, I would like to finish up with, with discussing chapter five, which is titled Re-Indigenization and its Discontents. And here you discuss several examples of communities working to recover their indigenous identity. So I just wonder if you may talk about some of these examples and particularly those projects that occurred in urban areas. So because, as you said, sometimes indigeneity is associated with rural areas and with the assumption that indigenous rights are necessarily attached to a territory. So tell us about this and Just to to flag it to our listeners, uh, I think the cover of your book is actually a picture of one of these urban cabildos, the the Bosa Cabildo headquarters. Correct. That's right. So tell us more about about these efforts of free indigenization. Okay, well, um, the contrast
2: is uh, back to the concept of indigeneity. uh, And here the question is are you indigenous now, or are you just of indigenous descent? And as we know, in Latin America, um, many, many people can claim, should they so choose, to be partially descended from ancestors who were here before the arrival of the Europeans. Um, that's a big contrast to the notion of whitening, where... A European descent was seen as, uh, you know, much, much more valuable. And um, the, the shift is absolutely worth studying of, of the valorization of indigenousness. So there are lots and lots of communities throughout the country who are petitioning and who have petitioned, some of them successfully, most of them not, to be recognized as officially an indigenous community. Uh, it used to be kind of automatic. You were indigenous if you were residing in a resguardo, which is a, a reserve. But now it's much, much more complicated because with multiculturalism and the Constitution and all the subsequent legislation, there are many benefits uh, to being seen as a, a recognized indigenous community. So there's a struggle uh, going on um, between state agencies and these petitioner communities. With respect to the urban case, it's extremely interesting because of this link that is at the back of people's minds, even though they might not be aware of it. There's a link between, shall we say, um, legitimate indigenous identity and territory. And of course, in urban areas, indigenous people residing there are usually seen as having migrated in. But these Muisca communities, and there are five of them in sections of Bogota and its surrounds, claim that they're still on the land that their ancestors were on just the city has dispossessed them, but, um, you know, they still, their umbilical cords are buried in the ground and, and, and their ancestors are in the local cemeteries and, and, and so on. So it's quite interesting, um, because here you have a claim of territory and you have a claim of descent. And you have, have a claim of culture and these Muisca Communities. And by the way, Muisca are a very well-known colonial and, and pre-Columbian population that is, uh, they're mentioned a great deal in the colonial records. And their language uh, is, uh, is a great deal of material about their language. Um, but they disappeared officially around the, the sometime in the 18th century. Uh, so this is reclamation project, reclamation of identity and claims accruing to that identity. And um, I, uh, I looked very briefly at two of these communities and their efforts to uh, live lives with dignity under extremely difficult circumstances, dangerous circumstances, and, uh, and to receive recognition uh, from the state. And to receive recognition from people who uh, will make all kinds of uh, disparaging comments, um, you know, you're you're just our neighbors. You're you know, there's nothing different about you. Where's your language? Uh, so on and so forth. I have been impressed by these the two that I visited with their their efforts. You know, to fight at, at times. You know, uh, very powerful interests from private corporations trying to do mega land grabs and from um, state and municipal uh, sectors as well uh, so I um I, I do find this part of the book uh quite interesting and 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 quite moving
1: yeah I also think it's super interesting and for our listeners uh you know this is chapter five there are many topics that we couldn't cover so this is an opportunity for them to go and buy the book. Um, So, but before I let you go, um, we arrived to the conclusion of the book and here you recapitulate your main interventions, but I wonder, you know, if there's anything that you think that is worth mentioning that we haven't discussed uh, yet. And, and more generally, uh, I just, I just want to ask you, how how do you think your book as a whole is important for for those interested in indigenous movements in Colombia, but also elsewhere? So I cannot help to think about, and what when when you discuss the difference between the legal recognition and the actual situation of indigenous communities, I cannot help to think about the, the cases of sexual violence against indigenous girls that have surfaced in the past few months in Colombia. So. So how multiculturalism cohabits with persistent inequalities and violence. So I just I just want to ask you if there's anything you want our listeners to, to hear before we let you go. Uh, yes, a, a couple of things. Uh, one is I emphasize
2: in the book, there are two projects that need to be kept distinct. One is analysis where you're really trying to understand something. And the other is applying judgment, uh, uh, looking at whether something is good or bad. Now, we engage in both of these efforts, and they're both important. But I would ask people to be clear when um, you know you're doing the one or you're doing the other, because very often things get messed up, and people think that you know you're applying a value judgment when actually. You're trying desperately to find the most neutral language and just describe something as it unfolds, uh, you know, in a particular place at a particular time. Uh, yes, with respect to uh, the current, uh, uh, apart from, from Colombia, I mean, the, the, the kinds of femicide that happen in, in Mexico, many of those women are indigenous. But uh, that's not quite, you know. In, in in northern Mexico, there is horrible, horrible sexual depredations, violence, rape—you name it—throughout Latin America. And quite often, the, the women have very little recourse. It's just not uh, safe situations they find themselves in. It's absolutely horrible. Another very unfortunate phenomenon is is a uh, Suicide uh, and the Valpais the youth suicide is very high. It's extremely upsetting, and those kinds of issues uh, need to be kept, you know, uppermost in our minds when you know we're we're analyzing and uh, and, and and trying to find solutions. Um, the you know Colombia and in, in the indigenous movement, indigenous communities have seen remarkable changes, but uh uh there is a long road ahead before you can have anything approximating justice and and just plain old security for many people who are find themselves in in extremely precarious situations
1: yeah, that is a very saddening truth, and i I hope uh you know, things change. <laughs> and I hope our listeners buy your book, read the book. It's a wonderful read. Just before finishing off, we usually like to ask you, is there anything you're working on right now? Do you have any projects? I'm uh, in
2: a kind of hiatus. Uh, um, my partner died. He he didn't die of of, of COVID-19. He was 91 years old, but he died in May, and I'm basically um, dealing with uh, with his uh, death and the uh, memorials. It's going to be a Zoom service, of course, and and things like that. That's the space I'm in now. So I've put uh, my own research on uh, on hold until I feel more like getting back to it.
1: <laughs> yeah, I understand that. And um, for you, my condolences. I also Thanks. lost a loved one in Colombia, so I understand. So yes, Jean, thank you. I mean, under those circumstances, thank you so much for talking to me today. No, we you're really welcome. Appreciate.
2: You're very welcome.
1: This was wonderful.
2: I enjoyed it a great deal.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Okay, round two. Name something that's not.